Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain of all, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Salah. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Salah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed in the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in opposition, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once. Twice I have heard this. That power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. Pastor. Uh, Psalm 62, you can take your Bibles and turn there this morning. I'd like to pray together uh, before we begin uh, to study the psalm. And so let's ask the Lord's help and blessing as we consider His Word together this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning mindful of our own weakness. I think about the words we sang in Augustus Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages, where we need a double cure for sin. Not just to be saved from wrath, from eternal punishment, but Lord, we need to be saved from the stain of sin. We need to be made pure by the blood of Christ. I pray this morning that you would do a work in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would transform us, that you would stir up faith in our hearts, believe you, to rest upon your word. Help us, Lord, as we consider who you are from your word, that we would be pleasing in your sight. Help me as I speak. Not just my voice to hold up, but help me, Lord, as I preach your word, that it would be clear and understandable, and that I would not in any way uh, impede the Holy Spirit's work, that you would be glorified and receive all the praise for everything that is done today. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, there's been a phrase that has come into common usage in American culture, especially in the world of politics. It's the phrase, fake news. In a day when we have a 24-7 news cycle, there's constant pressure for news outlets uh, to, uh, well, and especially cable television, the internet, social media, they've got to be the first to break the story. There's just all uh, constant pressure. And this has resulted in almost doing away with the entire editorial process. 
Nobody bothers to check sources anymore. And almost no one is held accountable for reporting things premature, prematurely or reporting without verifying that what they're saying is true. They'll run a story, a headline blasted across the screen or the page, and maybe later uh, run a retraction, you know, as a footnote somewhere that no one will ever see. And so this has led the general public to become very cynical of much of the news, and I'm not sure that I blame them. Fake news is everywhere. Stories being passed off as factual, which have nothing, which are really nothing more than opinion pieces. And as a result, it becomes harder and harder to know what's real and what isn't, especially as it concerns the news media. But it really goes beyond just the news and journalists who may have a hidden agenda, because in reality, this is a human problem. It's a problem that we have within ourselves. Because we can begin to focus on the troubles and the problems that we have in our life, the things that surround us. We can focus on the strength of our enemy. We can focus on all of the the, the troubles and the trials of life instead of focusing on God. And when we do that, we end up with a skewed perspective. We end up seeing the illusion rather than reality. It's a fake news problem. We end up buying into the headline that isn't actually accurate. And if we're not careful, we lose grip. We lose our grip on what's most important. But I'm thankful that there are passages in Scripture like Psalm 62 that help us to reorient ourselves, to reorient our perspective. To get a grip on what really matters in life. To allow the truth about God and the truth about man to come to light. Now Psalm 62 is most easily divided into three stanzas. Edward read it for us. You can see that very easily as you look at the text. The word Salah occurs in two places after verse 4 and verse 8, which would suggest simple four-verse stanzas. There's also a lot of repetition between verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6 that kind of suggests that, there are, that these are separate stanzas. And so the structure of it is fairly straightforward. We'll look at it that way as we go through it. If I could say it in a sentence, I'd like to do this if I can summarize the psalm for you to give you an idea of what we're talking about this morning and really what is the primary message and theme of Psalm 62. I would put it this way. Well, man altogether is lighter than air. God is weighty and stable. A trustworthy Savior. Man altogether is lighter than air. But God is weighty and stable. He is a trustworthy Savior. Now, there's one more element of structure that's found in Psalm 62, but it's not something you're likely to see as you read it this morning because it doesn't come through very well in our English translation of Psalm 62. 
Um, I have to confess this morning, I didn't read Psalm 62 in every possible English version. That would have taken me a long time to do. Uh, I didn't necessarily read it in every single one of the major translations either, but I did consult a number of them. And I only found one translation in which you could actually see this particular structural device that David uses uh, to provide emphasis to several key points in the psalm. Of the 12 verses in Psalm 6, or uh, in, in Psalm 62, six of them begin with the exact same Hebrew word. This word is translated in several different ways when it comes into English. And this is one of the challenges is that most of the translators, when they did this, were not consistent in how they translated the word in each verse. I don't want to be hard on them because... Like every other language, Hebrew, English, they're all the same. Words can have different meaning depending on how they're used in the context. And so it's appropriate to translate that word the way they did. It's translated in a number of ways. Truly, only, alone, surely, indeed. The context determines exactly how it should be translated. But I think that David used this term repeatedly six times in this psalm to start six different verses. And I think he did that, it's important, I think he did that on purpose. It helps to provide a kind of intensity and earnestness to what David is saying. Let me, let me share it with you this way. If you, would, if you were looking at Psalm 62 and you translated it consistently, you would say this, Only for God my soul waits in silence. Only He is my rock and salvation. Only they plan to cast Him down. Only for God, wait in silence, O my soul. Only He is my rock and my salvation. Only a vapor are men. David is trying to emphasize something very important here. And so I'd like to begin where David does in the first four verses of the psalm. David's confession of confidence in God. He says, be confident in God. Truly my soul waits, only my soul waits silently for God. From Him comes my salvation. Only He is my rock and salvation. He's my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you. Like a leaning wall on a tottering fence. Only they consult to cast Him down from His high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Salah. Verses 1 and 2 are really parallel to verses 5 and 6. The first use here in verses 1 and 2, they're a testimony. The second time that they're used, they serve more as a reminder or a word of advice. But here David is speaking of the silence of his soul as he waits for God. Now what are David's circumstances in this psalm? He doesn't say. We don't know for sure, but they can't be good. We don't speak of waiting for God when things are going well. David is waiting on God because something's wrong. There's an enemy working against him or sickness or some trial is struck and this is what we do. We're waiting on God. We're trying to cope with the circumstances that have come against us. And David writes the psalm really from what must be a difficult situation. Speaking of the silence of his soul, 
What does he mean by silence of his soul? He's talking about peace. He's talking about the tranquility in which he rests in his inner man. David is at peace. His soul is waiting in silence. When at least, according to verse 3, David is under attack. There are men who are trying to, 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 to destroy him, who are trying to tear him down and ruin him. How could David be at peace? How can his soul be in silence? How can he have tranquility within when without are all of the trials and enemies and hostility? Well, it's very simple. What David says in these opening verses, because from God comes his salvation, his deliverance, his help. The second verse here is filled with powerful images of God. He's David's rock, his salvation, his defense. And therefore the psalmist is confident that he will not be greatly shaken. Now if you were with us, Greg mentioned this already, but if you were with us in Sunday school, we looked at the image of God as a rock, which is really used all throughout the Bible. He's a sturdy foundation on which his people can stand firm. He's a shelter who guards his people from danger, a tower to which his people can return when they have strayed. He's a great warrior who leads his people into battle. God, our rock. David is speaking of God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his strength, and his security in the face of danger. John Calvin said that these images that David uses, God is my rock, my salvation, my defense. He said these are shields which offer protection to those who trust in the Lord. And so the psalm opens up here in these first two verses with David's testimony of trust in God because God is someone who's worthy of trust. He does give us a small glimpse into his circumstances. The trouble he's facing, I already mentioned in verse 3 and 4. He's under attack. His enemies here are singularly focused He says, only they consult to cast him down. This was their desire. Now in David's life, we know there were times when there were men who sought to capture him. They physically wanted to kill him and destroy him. We already went through this a number of times over the last few months as we looked at the previous Psalms and David was was on the run and Saul was trying to kill him. And there were other times when he faced rebellion in, in Israel and he was, uh, uh, his life was literally threatened. But here, the focus seems to be a little different. And I, and I appreciate it because, again, you and I don't usually face physical threats to our life like that. I mean, it's not that we can't face them, but normally that's not really the situation we find ourselves in. David here speaks more about their words. He says that they're lies. They use these lies to hurt him. This is something we all can relate to. These men, these people who are attacking David, they're completely false. They put up a, a front, right? They pretend to care about him. He says they bless him with their mouth, but in their hearts they curse him. 
They seek his destruction. He kind of presents this idea of him being up high and they're trying to topple him down. It's like a wall or a fence that they would knock over. And that seems to be what he has in mind there in the last part of verse 3. His enemies surrounding him, hoping to tear down the wall and bring him crashing to the ground. But I actually think there's another significance to this image, especially here in the context of verse 3, because the enemies appear to be powerful. The enemies appear to be powerful. And certainly they are desiring to destroy him. But I think that what David is suggesting here is that they themselves are actually the leaning wall and the tottering fence. They may appear strong. He may appear weak. But this is where the truth begins to destroy the illusion. It's not David who's weak and ready to fall. It's not the man who trusts in the Lord who's weak and ready to fall. It's actually his enemies. It's those people who are trusting in themselves. They are at the point of collapse. This is the true nature of things as David sees them and as he describes them. And I don't know exactly what problems you're facing today. I don't know what trials you're going through. But I do know this. That if you're trusting in God, you ought to be confident that He will protect you. That He will guard you. You ought to be confident that even though it may appear that you're ready to collapse, in God you have strength and you have hope. You should be able to say, right along with David, my heart is silent within me. I'm at peace. Because God is my rock, my salvation, and my defense. But, but, what happens when you don't feel that way? I mean, we know, right? Most of us have been around church long enough. We've been Christians long enough. We have that understanding of what the Bible says and what it's expected of us. And so we know that we ought to be able to say that, right? We know we're supposed to say, God is God at all in control. We're supposed to say, God is my rock, He's my salvation, He's my defense. I don't have anything to fear. We're supposed to be able to say, my heart is at rest. I know that there's chaos and difficult circumstances and troubles and trials and all these things, but, you know, keep a stiff, up, keep a stiff upper lip and just kind of tough it out because, you know, we're Christians and we're supposed to be able to handle these things, right? But what happens when you look within your own heart and you don't find confidence. You don't find peace. You don't find silence. What, what happens when you feel like any moment you're going to come crashing down and everything is going to be lost? Well, it's a good thing the psalm doesn't end after verse 4. David says, My soul, wait silently for God alone. For my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Salah. 
Verses 5 and 6 are very, very similar to verses 1 and 2, but they are not identical. And I think the differences, though they are very slight, are very important. In verse 5, or rather, I'm sorry, in the first verses, verses 1 and 2, he he speaks about the confidence that he has in his rock and salvation. But here, he speaks to himself. Reminding himself that he needs to wait patiently for God. This is David's reminder to be encouraged by God. It's a slightly different word here in verse 5 for wait than he uses in verse 1. It's almost as if he's advising himself to wait in silence now. Whereas before, he was actually doing so. And so... Here is David kind of pointing or, or reminding himself of what he needs to be doing to wait silently, to be at peace within himself. He speaks of his hope in verse 5, of his expectation for my expectations from him. If you compare that to verse 1, you see that he's replaced the word salvation, deliverance, here with the word expectation. He's speaking here more strongly. Not just of his confidence that God is going to deliver, but now it's his, his, his hope, his expectation, reminding himself, hey, you need to trust in the Lord. You notice there's one word that's missing from verse 6 that you find in verse 2. <clears throat> verse 2, he said, I shall not be greatly moved. In verse 6, he says, I shall not be moved. Now, as he reflects on it. As he thinks about it more carefully, he realizes it's not just that I won't be greatly moved, I won't be moved at all. David's confidence is built up as he speaks to himself, as he encourages his own heart to trust in the Lord. Now, I know normally we don't recommend talking to ourselves. I don't normally get up and say you should talk to yourself. I talk to myself. That's all right another issue but when you and I start to struggle to see the things the way God sees them sometimes we need to remind ourselves of who God is and what he does he is my rock he is my salvation he is my defense from time to time I need to tell myself these things so that I don't lose perspective. So that I don't start to believe that my problems are too big. So that I don't start to think that I'm sitting on top of a wall that's ready to crumble. I need to remember, and you need to remember, that the person who trusts in God will stand. That the person who is Refusing to trust in God is the one who is in jeopardy. The one who refuses to trust in God is the one who is at the point of failure. And you may need to remind yourself, God is my rock, my salvation, my defense. As long as I'm trusting in Him, I cannot fall. I like the fact that David goes on in the next verses to continue to describe 
God. He describes God again as his salvation. He's already said that. He describes God again as the rock of his strength and his refuge. These lie in God alone, but there's something else he says in verse 7. God is his glory. You see, it's only in the Lord that we can have any hope, any confidence. There is no salvation. There is no glory. There is no honor. There is no strength. There is no safety except in God. If you reject Him, you have nowhere to turn when things go wrong. You have no one to rescue you when things get out of hand. You have no one to make you stand. This is why David pleads. But he doesn't just plead with himself here. He pleads with all. All of us. In verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, you people. He's not saying this like you people. You know? He's saying this to all of us, inviting all of us to trust in the Lord. You need to trust in God at all times. Pour out your hearts before Him. Seek refuge in Him. I love the expression of verse 8 here. Pour out your heart. Empty it. Hold nothing back. I, I can't, I can hardly think of something that would be riskier than to tell everything that's on my heart. Can you imagine? I mean, really opening up and sharing everything that's on your heart? I don't know if it's humanly possible to find another person, a friend, a confidant, someone with whom you can truly share everything that's on your heart. I don't know if it's ever been tried. I mean, we always hold something back, right? We never open up fully. There's always something we keep for ourselves, only to ourselves. I mean, that's just common sense. No one wants to hear everything, right? <laughs> no one wants to know everything, every thought, every motive, every imagination. You know, there's some things that are best just kept to ourselves, right? But David says, pour out your heart to God. Don't hold back a drop. Empty it completely. What a risky proposition. If you unburden yourself, if you shared your heart with another person, would that result in inner peace and tranquility? I don't think so. How could you be sure that they were not like the enemies that David spoke of in verses 3 and 4? Those who bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. How could you be sure they wouldn't use it against you? How could you be sure they were truly a friend and not an enemy? And they may be today, but what about tomorrow? And next year, and ten years from now, are you sure you could trust them with that? 
You see, opening up ourselves and completely unburdening yourself is something that is very, very risky. That's why we don't do it. Even a true friend, even unintentionally will cause injury and hurt because we don't understand just what it means when we're holding that that secret, that inner thought, that, that, that idea, that revelation about another person. We don't always understand the significance. And so even unintentionally, we cause hurt. That's why this is so powerful. Because David says, pour out your heart before God. Don't hold anything back. He is a refuge you can trust God. He's the only one you can do this to. And unburden yourself. Completely open yourself to Him. There is nothing hidden from Him. David says you can trust Him. He's a refuge, so pour out your heart. I'd like to stop here, but I, I and, and really spend more time on this, but I, I want to see the last verses because that really helps us, I think, to kind of bring all of this into focus. Because in the final stanza, David draws all of this together into application. What does this mean? Look at verse 9. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they're weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. We consider what David has already said. He concludes the psalm with several proverb-like statements that are really best summarized, I think, with the direction, be wise toward God. There's three things, really, that he kind of concludes with. The first is this. He considers the true nature of mankind. Remember what I said at the beginning, that part of the problem is we, we often believe in illusion rather than what is really real. This verse stands as a correction for that kind of thinking. God is a rock. He's a rock of strength. But man, both the low and the high, the commoner and the nobleman, are vapor and lies. Notice the way he describes them. If they're weighed in a balance, he says, that, that means placed on a scale. They're lighter than air. There's nothing there at all. Take all of men, all of mankind, and, and David says, put them all on the scale. Put them all on one side of the scale and the air pushes them down on the other side. They're lighter than air. There's nothing there. Here's the contrast between the glory of God and that of man. The Lord is substantial. He's strong and mighty. He's able to defend every man, every woman, every child who trusts in Him. And even though men appear to be substantial, appear to be strong, powerful. 
They're nothing but vapor, a breath of air, a puff of wind. This is the reality that we need to embrace. We need to tell ourselves this often so that we'll fear God rather than men. Men all added together are nothing, lighter than air. But God is a rock. He is the refuge. The second proverb, if you will, is found in verse 10. See, the problem is we're we're tempted to put too much stock in men, to trust men, to fear men. But there's something else we're tempted to trust in. We're tempted to trust in riches and the power to get them, oftentimes through injustice. But you need to understand something. There's always tyrants in this world, but none of them will last. And the greatest fortunes ever amassed are volatile and fleeting. David speaks of it here, but it wasn't lost on his son Solomon. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 23 and verse 5, Will you set your eyes on, thi- on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Think riches? Think wealth and influence and power is something to be trusted in? To, de- to depend on? Don't trust in them. Riches can vanish without a trace. And on top of that, don't turn to wicked and selfish means to get gain. Because again, in this world, it looks like what we see is the strong preying on the weak, right? We see the, the wicked oppress the righteous. So David is talking about. It appears the strong preying on the weak, but from God's perspective, things are very, very different. Those who would attack, who would tear down the righteous. They are the leaning wall and the tottering fence. The one who thinks he's strong, who thinks he can oppress the weak, is only storing up judgment against himself. If you build your life around the pursuit of wealth, you will be disappointed. You will bring on yourself all sorts of misery. We should not be deceived by appearances. We need to trust in the Lord. David closes the psalm with a final statement. The wicked and ungodly are insubstantial. Men are like a vapor. But God possesses power and love. This is the glory of God. Contrast to the so-called glory of men, which adds up to nothing. David says, I've heard it once and I've heard it twice. Over and over again, he says, I've been taught this of the Lord, that all power belongs to him as well as all mercy. The power of God is seen in the images that David has used here. God is my rock, my salvation, my defense. This is God's power. His power can be trusted to withstand every assault, every attack. But the mercy of God, the love of God, is seen in His faithfulness as our refuge. David says, pour out your heart before Him. Because only God can be trusted. Only God can be trusted with the priceless and fragile thing that is your heart. If you trust your heart to someone else, you may find that they 
who bless with their mouth and curse with their heart. But God is not like that. When you pour out your heart before Him, He is powerful to protect it, and He is loving and faithful to keep it and to guard it. Appearances really can be deceiving. When Jesus was arrested and brought to trial before Herod and Pilate, he no doubt looked like just an ordinary man. When he was beaten, when he was mocked and spit upon, he seemed to be completely helpless and at the mercy of those cruel Roman soldiers. When he was stripped naked and forced to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion, and he was unable to do it because of the weakness that he had from blood loss, he didn't look like much of a messiah an anointed king of Israel. When he hung on the cross, slowly dying in agony, amid the jeers and taunts of the crowd, he didn't even look like a man anymore. When they laid his body in the tomb, they rolled the stone over the entrance and they sealed it with the governor's signet. I have no doubt that the devil leaped for joy thinking that he had won a major victory. But appearances are just that. Sometimes, reality is something quite different. None of those men had any power over Jesus to hurt him, to mock him, to spit upon him, to beat him, to condemn him, to crucify him. None of them had that power over him because he laid down his life. He gave it up willingly. He allowed himself to be arrested and tried. He allowed himself to be mocked and beaten, to be spit upon and scourged, publicly humiliated and crucified. He allowed his blood to be poured out and his body to be broken and then placed in a borrowed tomb. All the while, he knew that this was the way to victory. What appeared to be the greatest defeat for virtue and righteousness in all of history turned out to be ultimate victory over sin and death and hell. The Apostle Paul describes what Jesus did in Colossians 2. He says that Christ wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers. That word disarmed actually means disrobed, stripped. Paul says that in going to the cross, Jesus Christ disrobed the powers of darkness. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Appearances can be deceiving. Jesus didn't lose by going to the cross. He made a public spectacle of Satan and all of his hosts by triumphing over them in the cross. Don't believe the lie. Embrace the truth. To God belongs all 
power and all mercy. You can trust Him. Pour out your heart to Him. Find refuge in the One who is your rock and your salvation. Let's pray.